the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. All right. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Just changing it up yeah, a little bit. Wow, you know? look at you. You are unhinged. <laughs> unhinged for Brian, Brian Fromm. Brian Hom. <laughs> Hello, my name is Brian Fromm. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Jeez Louise. We should do a show together. <laughs> oh, you're listening to The Common Good. We're glad you're joining us today on this Tuesday. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter at Common Good Talk. That is Common Good Talk. And uh, there you can find <laughs> there, both our producer and Ian are cheering me because I spent all yesterday getting it incorrect. Uh, you can find uh, you can find segments on there, things, articles that we've discussed. Uh, so go ahead and follow us on Twitter there. You can also find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. So as I mentioned to you yesterday, uh, over the weekend, my family was on vacation in Michigan. America's high five mm-hmm. and uh, up at the beach. And one day. I had to drop my family off because there was, in St. Joe's, just no parking. So I had to park really far away. Right. And uh, imagine that a Saturday, a beautiful Saturday, <laughs> at midday the beach, right? at the beach in Michigan. <laughs> and uh, so I was uh, had such a long walk that I was listening to a podcast. And uh, someday we should go over our list of the podcasts that we most often listen to. Listen to. Ooh, that'd be fun. That would be. One of mine is usually a sports one. It's like 80% sports called the Bill Simmons Podcast. And but he also like 20 percent of the time he will do kind of pop culture stuff right. or just bring on. He had the president of the, the CEO of Twitter on there one time. All these. Kind no of kidding. Stuff. Wow. I think he had Obama on there one time. Um, and uh, but to, uh, the other day he had on the comedian Sarah Silverman, mm-hmm. you know, Sarah Silverman. Uh, not personally. Uh, <laughs> you, you don't know that. You don't know who I know. So Sarah Silverman has been a little bit in the news because she's uh, what, there's a little context to the story. She's really uh, on the left side of the political spectrum and on the cultural spectrum. She's a stand up comedian um, and she pokes a lot of fun at Donald Trump and Trump followers and this and that. Uh, in the podcast, she's talked about something that, that you and I have touched on, but I found it really fascinating because uh, she's having to put up with it. And it's usually something that people on uh, the conservative end of the spectrum saying that it's, that it's something they're facing. Let me give you the background. Okay. Uh, she, uh, she has kind of fallen victim to uh, this whole kind of uh, movement where something you did in the past that might not have been as culturally insensitive back then or whatever is now looked at through the 2019 lens and you're kind of paying the price for what you said back then. You Got know it. what I'm talking about? Uh-huh. And so she explained in the podcast that she was recently let go from a movie that she was up and really excited to do 
because it got resurfaced at her old Comedy Central show in 2007 called the Sarah Silverman Program uh, that uh, there was a sketch that she now has renounced. She's gone on Twitter and said, I, I'm not I'm not proud of that. But she did a segment in blackface mm. uh, and and it was all about it was about it was a segment about racism. But while that might have been OK back then, I don't even know that it was OK back then. But I know like SNL was doing stuff in blackface, all this kind of different stuff that now she's like uh, this has resurfaced in this movie Cutter. And it raised this thing. They then went talking about how they were. Uh, Bill Simmons talked about how, you know, comedians can't do anything now. And this kind of goes against stuff. Uh, but on that same podcast in the past, they've taken stuff that other people have said, whether it be conservatives or something about homosexuality or something. And they've kind of discredited people because of something they said 20 years ago. And so it's been really interesting for that conversation. And I brought this is a long way of asking you. What do you think of the culture that is increasingly, I think, happening uh, within our culture that says um, things that you may have said or done years and years ago now looked at through a new spectrum discredit what you've done? They kind of uh, this kind of outrage culture and the kind of like, uh, uh, yeah, you're not you, you can't speak to this anymore because of what you did back then. So you're asking me. What exactly? Uh, what do you think about that movement within our culture? I don't. I don't know that it's a movement. I think it's always been there. I think it's just reaching new places and new heights for different reasons and different times. And you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about cancel culture. How you that's know, the co- that's even, what I was asking. Right. About. If somebody, but cancel culture is a lot more geared and aimed towards you do something currently. You're like, up, oh, you're done. You're out. And um, it's the power of social media. It's the power of in some ways, mob mentality, but sometimes the mob is right. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that's a segment for another day, but um, I am interested in, like Sarah Silverman is pretty crass yes. even today. Um, she's pretty outspoken, mm-hmm. so I'm trying to separate that observation and some of the things maybe you agree or disagree with her, you know, politically or socially. It is interesting to me, I'm thinking about uh, like Kevin Hart and the Oscars, Yeah, when it was an old tweet, you know, like a decade plus, mm-hmm. and Part of me, this is a this is not a helpful way to think about it, but I, I keep wondering like, why don't you delete that stuff? Like, that too. when you are sort of entering into new consciousness, when do you, especially if you're a mogul, especially if you're a superstar celebrity, don't you have staff for this to say, hey, why don't we go back and anything before? I mean, you had even mentioned this is not the same at all, but Matt Chandler's church, uh, they've deleted a bunch of his old sermons. Yeah, uh, from the website, not because it was nothing wrong. He just they, said he was angry. He's like, I was just angry, and that doesn't represent our church, and that doesn't represent us well. But he's also caught backlash for that. Like, no, that's a part of your story. You should keep it. You could tie that also into the taking down of statues, yep. right? Like, and we shouldn't just erase the terrible things we've done. Like, we, but or, or should we? Should we? Should we just clear those things from the landscape because they represent like a people or a thought that we don't actually hold anymore? I think all of those ideas and sentiments are a little connected. Um, but with her specifically, it's hard because she kind of goes, I mean, she outright says, I don't stand by the blackface sketch. I'm horrified by it and I can't erase it. I can only be changed by it and move on. So a sketch is one thing that's like out in the universe and whatever. Uh, but I imagine stuff like tweets and stuff though. Have you ever like gone through and like weeded through old stuff and thought, I don't, I don't want this don't to be findable anymore. Well, what about, I don't know if you saw the story last week or two, two or three weeks ago 
uh, that in the Nixon tapes that just came out, Ronald Reagan says uh-huh. some really bad stuff. Yes. Or you and I talked about a story two or three months ago that some stuff has come out about Martin Luther King that uh-huh. is really bad. Yes. Does Now we're talking about huge public figures who have made a lot of good in the world, depending uh-huh. on what you think of them. Right. What does that do to their legacy? Like, that's where it gets a little more interesting for me. Like, okay. Uh, it should impact their legacy. I don't think it necessarily means it's like a pastor that struggles, you know, in any area of sin. That doesn't mean that mm-hmm. everything they ever taught or said or preached or wrote <laughs> is wrong. But I do think it's I think it's really interesting that we we do want to. It seems like a bandwagoning where if if somebody any length of time in the past said something offensive or hurtful. Right. Uh, which we all have done, by the way. Um, it sounds like Sarah's owning it and saying, I don't stand by that no. anymore. So it is interesting to me that there's like real life implications right here and now where she's like, I've already repented of that thing. I already said sorry, right? But maybe there needs to be more than I'm just, I'm sorry. Maybe somebody's saying, I will right, we'll make a donation or, may, you know, maybe you need to be more proactively standing against these types of depictions. I don't, I don't know quite what the outrage or cancel culture uh, would want for reparations. And I think that's where this all gets kind of squishy because yeah. MLK or James McDonald or Reagan, do like, what, should we just burn all their books? Right. Or do they still say powerful things and now we just put an asterisk next to it? I don't really know what the best way forward is, but I don't think it's insignificant. Yeah, that's. I'm glad you came up with the phrase because I was searching for it because they literally use the phrase cancel culture in the podcast. Oh, okay. And I just don't know what I think about cancel culture. Like I do... I'm not, I, this is where you and I just work stuff out because I see it. I see yeah, the reason right. for it. And I also see the danger of it. And who gets to decide who gets to decide who's canceled and what that even means? Well, let's toss that out then. What do you think of yeah. cancel culture? Someone screws up. Uh, do they just disappear from the landscape? Do we have the right or the responsibility to cancel them? Do people get second, third, fourth chances? Does it depend on the offense? Like, how do we navigate when people make big mistakes, especially when they're in the public eye? I'm, I'd be really curious to know what people I think. I would be, too. I would be, too. Well, starting off in the deep end here on The Common Good. Coming up next, we're going to stay in the deep end with this article. Conservative Christians have a porn problem, studies show, but not the one you think. We're going to discuss mm. that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, before we went to the break, we teased out this article from religionnews.com. It says this, conservative Christians have a porn problem study show, but not the one you think. And as hmm. as pastors who, who you know speak and deal with a lot of guys, um, and especially old youth pastors, uh, the topic of pornography is one that it probably comes up often. Or at least should come up often. Yeah, maybe yeah, maybe not as often as it should. <laughs> Good point. Good point. So let me just read the beginning of this article and uh, and then get your reaction to it. American evangelicals have a pornography problem, but it may not be the problem you think. It's not that they are all secretly using pornography at higher rates than average. According to University of Oklahoma sociologist Samuel L. Perry's recent study, conservative Christians, a catch-all that Perry uses to describe evangelicals with certain key theological beliefs, don't actually use pornography as often as other Americans do. Yes, their porn use has risen over time, and that increase has caused significant hand-wringing in the church. But according to several decades of general society survey data, conservative Christian men's pornography consumption tracks that of all American men over the same time period. And since Christian's pornography usage was lower to start, it's still lower. What's more, 
the most committed Christian men, those who say they have had a born again experience or have tried to convert someone else to the faith, have even lower rates than conservative Christians as a whole. And these, quote, super Christians consumption does not seem to be increasing Hmm. over time. And so uh, the point of the article, and it goes into more of the statistics that we can get into, but it says this, uh, that basically this kind of thing that I've probably said that pornography use among Christian men is the same as other men uh, outside the church, and it's an increasing problem. I think this article is saying it is a problem, but that it's unfair to say that Christian men, especially ones it says here are taking their faith, I don't know, more seriously. I, I don't know if that's a good way to put it. Um, their pornography use is a lot less. And so I don't know what we do with that information because it's still there. And in fact, the article says it's growing at the same rate that cultures is, but it started at a lower point. So it's still lower. I don't know if that's good news, bad news. What do you do with that information? Well, I, you know, we talked about this, uh, gosh, maybe back in January too, that even some of the, the statistics and they're kind of soft statistics that, Christians are divorcing at the same rate as well. Mm-hmm. It seems to be more and more data that that's not true, right. which kind of got me thinking, who stands to benefit the most from perpetuating statistics like this that turn out to not be all that true? Mm. I think the undercurrent of a lot of this tends to be uh, a, a pretty firm grip on the uh, on the shame culture that sometimes the church can be a little associated yeah. with. And not that, I mean, I know plenty of people, men and women, by the way, who have deeply struggle with pornography and and would share with you how much of a true addiction it actually is. Sometimes it gets kind of relegated like, ah, how bad could it be? It's not like a drug. No, it is a drug. Like there, it it is as problematic for some people as we make it out to seem. I'm curious who stands to benefit in your mind by the perpetuation of the vastness of statistics. If they're not actually true, like Hmm. does it weaken the argument if we say, okay, so it's only actually 15% of, Christian men, let's say, rather than saying it's 40, um, does it just get less attention then or it gets Maybe. less steam? Like, who loses money on that? Like, who? I don't understand why we just can't be forthright in making sure the data is correct. Like, we have to create a sensationalized, like, 87% of all Christian men are, are this type of man. They're struggling yeah. with this. I don't, to me, that seems unhelpful. And honestly, maybe it just comes down to, an inability to actually get the right data. That's what I was going to go to. I just wonder if it, you know, uh, it was reported this way at some point and it's just gotten traction. It's the same way right. 50% of Christians get divorced and you're like, oh wait, that actually might not be true. Or, but it gets passed along like a, like a chain letter almost yeah. and so no one does any research and we're like, oh, I heard from so-and-so yeah. that this is yeah. the number. And like, Maybe not. Yeah. Uh, here's one thing that's interesting in this article though because it does talk about uh, Christians and kind of pornography being uh, a really big deal, which it is. Um, but he says this, Uh, Christians who do use pornography are more likely than other believers to reduce their involvement in their churches or to even exit religion altogether. And he says this gets back to something you talked about on Monday's show uh, when we talked about, I believe, the the uh, the songwriter from Hillsong. Yeah, right. About our churches, safe places to be able to find healing yeah, right. and to admit to our sins. Or is this like a, one of those scarlet letter sins that rather than deal with it, we're going to get out of the church because we've done something that's just not, you could never even own to or is permissible. Uh, that's a haunting line. I believe in here that they, that people who struggle with pornography, Christians who struggle with pornography are more likely to reduce their involvement in church and more, more likely just to leave church altogether. Yeah. I, and I think it is interesting too, that, 
part of what the book seems to be claiming is that because particularly Christian conservative men experience the highest levels of guilt and shame, they're more likely to carry out their behaviors in secret at and have higher risks of divorce. So that raises all sorts of other questions like, okay, Pastor Brian and Ian, mm-hmm. are you saying, well, then just do your porn in public or do it out in the open <laughs> or or do it you know, with a spouse? Yeah. Is that the answer? Like, would you suggest someone in your church that says, oh, they say they come to you in secret, I'm really struggling with this thing and I'm, and I'm caught in the cycle of guilt and shame. Would any of your counsel ever look like, well, you should, this is something that you should be doing with your spouse then? It would not be. I think it would be you. That is a struggle and that is sinful. And we, we need to get, I'll, I'll help you get a handle on this, but right. it does need to be brought into uh, the public sphere, whatever that looks like for you, whether it be, you know, one, you know, a mentor, a community group. I'm not saying like up in front of the church on a Sunday morning, but um, so that's the public nature of it to me. So I think so much about pornography in the church is like, keep it in the darkness, keep it in the darkness, keep it in the darkness. And then someone's like, I can't break this struggle. My only, mm. what I can control is getting out of the church. Yeah, and so right, I'm going right. to get out of the church because I'm tired of this guilt and I'm tired of the shame as opposed to how are we as Christians supposed to deal with guilt and shame? Right. Right. It's, we're preaching through first John. It talks about bringing things from darkness into light and confessing and they're receiving cleansing. And um, there's something about it though, that, that we, we, um, we don't invite people to do that. Well, this, this is what I found interesting. It says, even though conservative Christians use porn less than other Americans, they are statistically twice as likely to consider themselves addicted to it. Their shame can be soul crushing. Oh, that's interesting. Not to mention, also, there's this whole other conversation about female porn addiction, right? Because yeah, well, in most circles, porn, even even in Christian circles, is still seen as a predominantly masculine thing. It can kind of become a part of their gender identity. So there is at least a tribe, I guess, in that regard. Mm-hmm. I'm curious for like conservative Christian women, depending on how conservative, because a lot of Christian traditions don't have any space for conversations around female lust yeah, you're right. or female sexuality. And so I imagine for them, it's not only the issue of the thing, but it's also got to be like perpetually isolating. Like, oh gosh, I'm a Christian conservative woman that struggles with this. I don't even know who to talk to. Other, right. No. I, at least for men, there's all sorts of websites and resources and we have rally, you know, there's all sorts of places, you know, that Christian men can go. I'm really curious about what that, what that must be like from a female perspective. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause it, <clears throat> In the church, that this is usually dealt with as just a men's a man's issue, um, but which is a problem. Yeah, just because it's it's primarily men or it's the majority of that number is men doesn't mean that there's not uh, a struggle for for uh, women out there. And I do want to make sure that we, uh, or at least I say, pornography is a big deal. Like it's got issues that we yeah, need absolutely. to deal with, and because it's a big deal, I think we want to encourage you to treat it like a big deal and and like we would with all sin and say. You know, how do we best break the chains of sin? It's in community. It's in people praying with you and helping you and not leaving in the darkness and just trying to do it all yourself. And there's a great website. We've talked about it before. Triple X That's X X X There's all sorts of resources yes. and programs and partner churches. If you or anyone, you know, is looking to like make some steps to improve in this area. X X X is a really, really good place to start. Well, coming up next here on The Common Good, we're going to discuss an article out of Christianity Today written by Ed Stetzer uh, saying this, that the people of God must boldly, still boldly proclaim the gospel message both here and abroad. We're going to talk about what that proclamation looks like next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Online at 1160hope.com. You can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Go ahead and subscribe, rate, review. And uh, we appreciate all of you who listen on the podcast. And now you can find us on Twitter as well at Common Good Talk. That is Common Good Talk. There you'll also get articles. You'll get other things. Maybe even a picture. Did you uh, uh, the um, bacon cupcakes that John gave us? Yeah. I feel like that should go online. That should the, the, the a picture. picture of the cupcakes, not the actual cupcake. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I could get the cupcake online, but uh, bacon cupcakes. It's mm-hmm. a thing. It's a thing, people. Uh, but yeah, you, those are the hard hitting things you get on our Twitter account. So we'd mm, encourage you to follow us pictures there of cupcakes as and... well. Common good talk on Twitter. Uh, well at Christianity today, Ed Stetzer, uh, he writes frequently there and Stetzer, uh, is a, is a missiologist. He talks about missions. Uh, he is the chair of the Billy Graham, uh, center of church mission and evangelism at Wheaton college serves as the Dean of the School of Mission, Ministry, and Leadership at the college as well. And so uh, speaks a lot about mission. And his premise of this article is this. He writes, It's becoming clear that our churches in North America, and perhaps the Western world as well, have lost their once fervent passion for missions work. The great stories of global gospel proclamation we share are becoming more and more and anathema. And so I guess I would start before getting diving into some more of his details. I guess I would just start by asking, do you think that's true? Is, is that a sense that you have? Obviously, he's got a lot more research to go on. Um, but just anecdotally, are you seeing that in churches around you and people around you? It's hard to answer that because our I, our church places such a such a massive emphasis on missions. Yep. And community for a long time has been led by a lot of apostolic evangelistic leaders. And we're a part of new thing, church planning network. True. And so I, I feel like I'm, I'm swimming in some waters that are constantly thinking globally so that, yeah, I don't know that I feel like I'm in a great place to answer that. I do know that there has been sort of a schism between like long-term mission work and what's become kind of popularized as the missions trip. Yeah, and we've tackled that topic before. We're like, is that the same thing? You know, because we sent a dozen people on a plane to paint some walls and play some games for a week. Is that what Stetzer's talking about? I don't think so. I also know that there's also been a uh, an increase in awareness of some of the some of the ways that we can be tempted uh, in a Western context to sort of colonize in mm. our missions work and yeah. sort of bring a very Western white uh, mindset to a culture that knows nothing of that. And uh, so that's become a little, that's a little dichotomous for me too. Cause I think we've learned a whole lot more than we, you know, we kind of sometimes revel in the glory days of missions work. Like yeah, we also made a lot of mistakes yeah. then too yeah. with sort of our whitewashing or superimposing or, you know, what I'll sometimes call parachuting, we like parachute into a country, yep. Yep. tell them what they need and do that thing. And then we leave. And, and that's not, again, I don't think Stetzer in any way is glorifying any of that. But I do know that in, in some of the glory days of mission work, there also were probably some pretty big mistakes. So I do think Stetzer is advocating for parachuting in and staying. Um, yeah, right. And as, which is different than what you're talking about. But right. he says uh, they he says they are quite convinced that the idea of going to the other side of the world to tell people about Jesus is not only a waste of the missionaries life, but perhaps the lives of those to whom they journey to as well. That this is kind of a. 
a stream of culture. And he uses as an example a story we talked about way back near the beginning, right? It's uh, what was the guy's name? John Chow, uh, who just kayaked into this unreached people group and immediately got killed right and the backlash about that and how that was inappropriate and stats are going are saying it was heroic though well stats are holding the point but yet at the same time we usually glorify jim elliott who in some ways did the same thing with yeah, his group right. five in ecuador back in the 50s right um and so uh he's trying to raise up back a um a uh, priority of global missions and he is sensing that that has been lost a little bit. He says the great century of missions was an era from 1792 to 1910 when people had great enthusiasm for missionary endeavors. Such missionary work had widespread, though not universal, support, but not any longer. For example, while some churches are still involved and mission agencies are hard at work, many in the church are largely largely disengaged or simply disinterested. If we're going to love and promote global missions to unreached people today, it will be in spite of the low enthusiasm in some churches and regardless of widespread disdain and in some countries, active opposition. Some people hearing this respond by recognizing the importance of renewing our efforts to proclaim the gospel on the world stage. And I think this is really the only proper response he writes. Uh, so he's painting a bit more of a dark picture of where the church is when it comes to global missions. Yeah. And this could be play into some church consumerism and other things. But I hear you saying, and, and your church certainly, um, but even your whole networks, it's it's different than what we would call traditional missions work. We're going to support this missionary. They're going to go. And I think it's probably different because you guys would say it's been more effective probably. Well, and that's, I'm glad you asked that because that is kind of in the last three years where a lot of my thinking is gone. Yep. I'm, I'm almost more interested in church planning than anything else, mm-hmm. to be honest, because... Well, for a lot of reasons, one, because we're training and equipping leaders and we're often raising up people from these actual contexts. Not that I don't think there's wisdom in a guy from Idaho <laughs> flying over to Venezuela and, and investing his life there. I think there's a lot of strength and power there. I also yeah. think sometimes for better, or for worse, uh, someone from another context has different clout in a new environment. I have plenty of friends who are they're, they're doing Bible translating or they're working yeah. in schools like they're in my mind still very much doing the work of a missionary and have had struggles, but have also really dug in, learned the language, learned the culture, learned the people and have earned a lot of respect yeah. in these communities. I just think to to have this conversation divorced from the conversation of church planning is a, is a miss. Agreed. I think they're right and left arms. And I think. Again, I'm biased because that's kind of the waters I swim in. But Patrick O'Connell and the New Thing team, they're, they're doing so much effort, not only to like raise up leaders, but to do so in contexts that honor the people group that they're wanting to reach and the, the learning styles of the people they're wanting to reach. And mm. a lot of that, I think, is tough to do in a vacuum or a laboratory. And uh, I don't know. It, it's fascinating to watch even the differences between some of the church planning movements in, let's say, Africa as opposed to North America. Yeah, It looks different, and I think maybe it's supposed to. Yeah. And uh, I think when we miss that mark, it, becomes, it can become a little too copy and paste. I think missions work and copy and paste don't have uh, – they sh- I don't think should have anything to do with each other almost at all. I like that. I think that what I take from Stetzer's thing here at its core, uh, what I'm convicted by is – are we raising up people uh, who at all have a passion for for seeing unreached people groups? That's find a great Jesus? question. Are That's we raising question. up uh, somebody challenged me one day, basically at 
in our church going, hey, we never pray for even other countries. We don't pray for missionaries. We don't pray. And I was like, that is 100 percent true. Yeah. Uh, I think you guys have really tapped into the methodology and what works best. And and I think it's it's convicting to go how much time, you know, we probably grew up now. It's probably seen as passe and old school, but I don't know if you grew up in this, but as Christian Missionary Alliance churches, uh-huh. we had we had missions week and we. Had, oh, yeah. We totally. had, you know, the flags and all yep. this stuff. And, and that totally. was right there. And there are probably things that we could be doing. We, the church, can be doing better to raise up people mm. Uh, who at all are even aware of what's going on around the world. Yeah, the awareness definitely needs to be where it starts. I'm always a little skeptical of kind of the slacktivism where we pat ourselves on the back for Uh, knowing something. You're like, yeah, but what what time, resources, money have you actually invested in this? But you're totally right. The starting point has to be, oh, right, there's a church in Australia. Oh, goodness, there's a church in Netherlands. Like, I think even that awareness, uh, and you're totally right. I think a lot of that starts... With the leadership, it starts with the pulpit, and uh, I think to speak of the God of the God of nations, yep. um, of every tribe and tongue, I think that is a really important thing for us to kind of keep in the in the forefront. Uh, well, coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about a hard story that I'm not even sure what to do with uh, that was out last week. A man attacked a 13-year-old boy in Montana because he was, quote, disrespecting the national anthem, witnesses say. Uh, we're going to wrestle with what what's even going on there next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, you can continue the conversation on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Online at 1160hope.com, or you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcasts. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, review. Uh, You can also call us at 312-660-2594, 312-660-2594. Last one is Twitter. We are now up at Twitter at uh, Common Good Talk. Got it. Common Good Talk. Nailed it. Common Good Talk. And uh, we uh, go ahead and follow us on Twitter. And uh, it, we'd love to have you uh, part of the conversation. Lots of different ways to connect to the show. That was a long way of saying lots of different ways to connect to the show. <laughs> we would love for you to connect almost, with us. Almost a creepy amount of ways. <laughs> you can find us anywhere. I got 10 minutes for that. Let me just keep listening. You can call Ian on his phone. You can call me on my phone. And No, not going to do that. So anyway, weird story, sad story, hard story out of Montana. Yeah. Uh, let me just read it for you. And then I think we just want to wrestle with it. What's it say about his culture? Is this just a a one-off crazy person, uh, which he is, or is this something more culturally going on? A little bit of both. What's it say about us? A Montana man allegedly slammed a boy's head to the ground at a county fair because the 13-year-old kept his hat on during the national anthem, a witness told local news outlets. In a news release, Mineral County Sheriff Mike Boone said witnesses identified the suspect as 39-year-old Kurt James Brockway. Brockway was apprehended at the fairgrounds located in the western Montana town of Superior and charged with the assault on a minor, which is a felony. The sheriff's office declined to provide additional information, including motive. But Taylor Hennick, who attended the event, told local news outlets she overheard the attack near the fairground entrance just as the national anthem began to play. The woman said she heard a pop and turned to see the boy writhing on the ground. He was bleeding out of his ears, seizing on the ground, just not coherent. Uh, 
a startled spectators closed in on Brockway, Hennick said that he offered a simple defense for his actions. He said the boy was disrespecting the national anthem, so he had every right to do that. Police say the child was rushed to the hospital uh, and then flown to Sacred Heart Children's Hospital in Spokane. Uh, the, the news station reports the boy suffered temporal skull fractures in the incident. His mother told the station her son's ears bled for six hours after the alleged assault. The good news is that by Tuesday, the boy had been released from the hospital and was recovering from home at home. So just a, a, a weird, a weird story. And it gets a little weirder when you read what his defense lawyer said. So this isn't somebody on the other side. This is the guy who's defending uh Kurt James Brockway for the incident, the defense lawyer said uh, of Brockway, his commander in chief is telling people that if they kneel, they should be fired or if they burn a flag, they should be punished. He certainly didn't understand it was a crime. That's going to be his defense. His defense is going to be that the people he listens to on the radio, whether it be the president, all down to other people are making this such a big deal that he was just lack of a better word, following orders. And so, man, there's so much here to chew on. We're thankful that the boy is doing well. I mean, 13 years old, like that's, that's a kid. That's a kid. And uh, it doesn't say the kid was even kneeling. Not that that would have made this better, but the kid, I don't think was making a political stand or the story seems to read. He just didn't take off his hat. Yeah. It's, and it's so appalling. not that that would it's make it okay. Though, right? right. Not that it's that would make it okay. Through through. Right. But what do you, besides just, I mean, this making us angry and sad. What do we? What do we even do with this story as we chew on it? That's been all over the news as of late. Well, the the uh, the attorney also said this. Uh, he said he told me, I guess I messed up because he got hurt, but I'm a patriot. Mm. And I I want to talk about that for a second. Go for it. Because in his mind, and again, this is one case, but not an isolated case. So let's keep it in proper perspective and tension. That he would equate that kind of behavior with being patriotic mm-hmm. is so troubling yes. and so appalling. I'm not saying don't love your country, don't stand up for the rights of what we fought for, all of that stuff. But to say, I guess I messed up because he got hurt, yep. but I'm a patriot, is so loaded and so problematic for yes. me because it is, in no uncertain terms, linking aggression and violence to patriotism yep. in his mind when warranted to- totally justified like i'm bummed that he got hurt now i mean not to mention again a 39 year old man and a 13 year old boy yep yep i'm i'm so heartbroken and so appalled by this story but it doesn't seem and maybe there's i mean i know that he's a he's an injured veteran and there's all sorts of maybe maybe there's other stuff going on right but to to not as best i can tell like no real remorse, no real like. I just, I snapped. I didn't know what I was thinking. I had a complete lapse of judgment. None of that. It's like I listen. I'm bummed that he got hurt, but I'm a patriot as a way of sort of saying, still at the end of the day, justified in my actions because you you don't keep a hat on during that. That's right. you know what I mean. Like that for me is so uh, haunting. And I, and again, just to be fair, I don't see a whole lot of people coming to defense of this guy. No, 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 this no. Uprising like, oh yeah, boy had it coming. Like. On both sides, everyone yep. seems to be condemning his actions yes, through and yes. through. So I'm not looking to like link him to any any particular. No, but know. I think what we are saying is, man, why do these types of stories just keep popping up <laughs> like uh, violent stories, crazy stories? And um, 
you know, it, I just can't imagine, first of all, being the parent of, of this 13 year old. But uh, I would, I, I would lose it. I would lose it. Lose it. But also we need to remember when we talk about patriotism, people like part of what it means to be a patriot, part of what it means to love our country is the freedom for people who you vehemently disagree with to have the freedom to express that. And that kid, this kid wasn't doing that. This kid, he's a 13 year old, like 13 year old didn't. And can we also discuss the irony that the kid attacked, that the guy attacked the kid during the national anthem? Yeah, right. Um, right. But uh, part of the beauty of the freedom of the country we live in is that you have the freedom to express your views, but also the people have the freedom to express the views that make you sick, that you don't agree with. But that's what makes freedom beautiful. And that's what that's what all of, you know, we've been fighting for all of these years and not his views, by the way. We're not in any way condoning. No, not, expressing of these views, not illegal views right. of like of assaulting somebody. But let's pretend that that it, this kid was making a statement, which he wasn't. But let's pretend that he was. That's part of being a like that's American, that people can do that and can express their views. And uh and and that's that's what seems to be getting lost in our current political culture on yeah. both sides is the ability to go. I vehemently disagree with you. And that's not this story. I'm kind of taking this bigger now. I vehemently disagree with you, but I still agree with you having the right to express that which I vehemently disagree with. But instead, we go to violence and we go to shutting people down and. I don't know, just straight outrage. And in the like we've lost all ability for discussion, even within our culture, which again is different from this article, but I don't know. I think it's a real problem and it's a problem that's getting worse in our culture. Well, in this article, I mean, other sources have gone on to say there actually was no exchange to go back no. to this story specifically. No exchange walks up, grabs Spot him by the throat, him. picks him up and slams into the concrete head first. Like, yep. that he could have uh, killed the kid. He absolutely could have killed the kid. And I don't know. I mean, to me, uh, I don't understand how in any processing mind that would be acceptable, uh, beneficial, any of the things that I would like to think that the most of us, most of us are like, that's our highest yep. aim is to do, you know, the right thing. He, he feels very justified in this. And that to me is, uh, it makes me really sad. Very sad. That any context or culture would point to that and in his mind say, yeah, that, that's okay. That's the right way to behave. I think it's something to wrestle with. He brings it up. What's it mean to be a patriot? Yeah. What does it even mean? Right. Uh, a tough story, but one we'd love to hear your feedback on. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to talk a bit of, uh, about a feel-good story. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Man, I want to do more feel-good stories if this is what we get. What other songs would you use for feel-good stories? I don't even know. Mm. Ain't No Sunshine? No, that's, no, that's not, no, not feel-good. Oh, wow. Happy Day? Oh, Happy Day. All right. You could all do Pharrell's Happy. That could yes, work. Yes, yes, Okay. Friends are friends forever. Oh, <laughs> I can't think of anything else while listening to that song in the background. That's true. That's it's very all hard to do. That's all that I hear. Well, John, our producer, producer John, if you will, he gave us this because it's a uh, it's a feel good story we want to do. But again, uh, my name is Brian Fromm, joined by Ian Simpkins. And, you know, especially in the first hour here, we did some hard stories, everything from cancel culture uh, to uh, conservative Christians and pornography to a 13 year old boy being assaulted over not taking his hat off for the national anthem, like some heavy stories. We'd appreciate if you missed them to go back on the podcast and listen to them and uh, give us your feedback on it. But we're going to 
We're going to go with a little bit more of a a feel-good story, although there is a sad part to this story, I would say. Let me just read the headline, then Ian's going to catch us up on it. Nurse adopts baby girl after parents didn't visit for five months. Judge calls it destiny. So it says, Nurse Liz Smith thought that almost 40, her chances of becoming a parent were but a dream. She tried several methods of getting pregnant, including sperm donations and IVF, but learned her labs prevented her from being a candidate. That was a bad day, Smith recalled in an interview with the hospital. Then she met Giselle at her hospital, Franciscan Children's Hospital in Brighton, Massachusetts, where she was a senior director of nursing, born July 16th prematurely at 29 weeks and weighing just one pound, 14 ounces. Wow. Giselle came into the world with neonatal abstinence syndrome from being exposed to narcotics during the pregnancy. So who is this beautiful angel? Smith was taken with the baby girl instantly. Giselle had already been at the hospital for five months by the time Smith spotted a nurse wheeling her down the hall. Who's this beautiful angel, Smith asked. And the nurse answered, her name is Giselle. Smith began visiting Giselle every day and rode the roller coaster of gains and setbacks. It was my reward after a long work day, she told the hospital. The state took custody of Giselle that October, and with the guidance of friends and coworkers, Smith began fostering Giselle. She helped her through cocaine and heroin withdrawal and fed her through a gastronomy. Hmm. Uh, is that right? Yeah. A gastronomy, too, about 16 hours a day. The initial goal was to reunite Giselle with her birth parents. Meanwhile, Smith said she was growing more and more in love with Giselle. Hmm. So the story goes on. This is the state ended uh, the parents' parental birthrights nine months after Smith began fostering Giselle, and their visits to see Giselle dwindled. Smith adopted Giselle Catherine Smith on October 18th, 2018. Giselle is now two, and her mother told today that she still has a feeding tube but asks for pizza and dances the baby shark, much <laughs> like other toddlers. If you told me a year ago she would be asking for pizza, I would not have believed you. And I think this is one of those stories of somebody really just living their lives with their eyes open yeah. and seeing this girl with this tremendous need and also in her own world feeling the heartache of not being able to have kids yeah. on her own biologically. And I think... What a what a beautiful picture of course correcting of thinking. All right, this is not at all mm-hmm. how I pictured my life at forty. Yeah, uh, but making making the the necessary steps to not only save this kid's life probably, but to actually, I think it sounds like in a lot of ways, like really enriching her own. Yeah, and so the sad part of the story is that a kid would get left that uh, would be born and then just left. Yeah, that's just i i i my mind just can't get around that. I know these things happen, but my mind just just can't get around that. But for this nurse to step in and be like, "Okay, like you said, this is not the way I saw my life going, but look at this opportunity uh to be part of a solution in this kid's life and to take this child in uh you and I talk so much on this show about the pro life movement and that we want to be pro life from from womb to tomb, and the church wants to be pro-life, but wants to be m- m- more pro-life and less just anti-abortion. This is a a um, a screaming example of what a pro-life ethic looks like. Yeah, It is caring more about the life of a child than even about your own, um, and then uh, doing something about it and your life being enriched through it. I yeah. mean, there's this just screams pro-life right here, and I think that for that reason— uh, this is the type of thing that needs to more and more be modeled within the church. Yeah, I love what the uh, the judge who was there actually on the day of Giselle's adoption told Smith. Um, he said, when a judge walks in the room, everyone stands out of respect. But today, I stand in respect for you, Liz, because you deserve the respect from this room. A birthday is a miracle. 
but adopting a child from miles away is destiny. And that's what brought the two of you together. I thought, man, I Mm. imagine the sense in that room must have just been so overwhelming. And the reason that we tell stories like this isn't just to like give accolades to this woman, to this hospital, but also because there's, there is so much pain and heartache and toxicity in the world. Sometimes we want for this show to kind of stand in opposition to that. Yes. It's so easy to open a window or open Facebook and just hear ugliness to just hear heartache. And we want to also, and we have to talk about that, right? Oh, we, spent, yeah. we spent a lot of today talking about some of those things. We can't just bury our head in the sand. We can't just ostrich syndrome, all the stuff that makes us uncomfortable, but we also want to be the kind of show that proactively is going after like, Hey, here's yeah. some really good stuff in the world. People yep. still, behave like this and care for one another and save lives and show respect and dignity. And I don't know about you, like this, this story is in so many ways, just a microcosm of like humanity at its best. And it is heartbreaking. And it does make me sad that like, I can't even imagine now having two kids of my own. I can't even conceive Mm -mm. of seeing that child born and then, and then walking away. And we don't know their story. We don't know, obviously all sorts of addiction and struggle there. And they, they need our, our prayers and love and concern just as much as anybody. But I think her willingness to step up in this regard is, is just such a beautiful example of selfless love. And I I just hope we can tell many more stories like this in the future. Cause when I hear stories like this, I, you know, at least in this point in my life, I don't feel like my wife and I are in a spot where we're like, okay, I've got, this makes me want to go adopt a kid. Yeah, right. But every time I hear a story where someone's doing something like that, I find exceptional, like exceptionally like Christ-like, I, I, it does cause me to pause and be like, all right, what am I doing? Yeah, I think right. you said it either yesterday or today about um, putting, you know, it's one thing to have thoughts about stuff or I'm forgetting exactly how you said it, but you said eventually there needs to be action, right? Yeah. Like what's the move? And these types of really extreme actions do cause me to go, uh, what am I doing for the greater good? Like what, uh, what is the church doing? We yell a lot about abortion and we yell a lot about pro-life, but what are we doing? And we are doing a lot. I'm not one of those people who doesn't, I think church is doing a ton, right? but it causes me to look in the mirror as an individual and go, okay, Brian, what are, what are you doing? Right. What is your church doing uh, to help the least and the lost? This kid would who knows what happens to this child? Right? right. Right. And, and this woman stepped in and, and whether she's a believer or not, uh, took Jesus's words to heart and went and, uh, and went and ultimately took in the least of these, uh, and changed a life, but also changed hers in the process. These kinds of stories. That's why I love doing them because they cause me to go, okay, let me get outside of myself and go, what am I doing? Yeah, well, and that's one of the things that we said even on Sunday and for the series of community, we're saying our, our mission statement is helping people find their way back to God, yep. not hoping people find their way back to God. Mm. And helping requires action. It, I absolutely think we need to we need to fill our social media streams with thoughtful rhetoric. Mm-hmm. I think we need research. We need academia. We need all these things, but we also need action. We yeah. need dirt under our nails at times to not just, you know, Brian and Ian read stories like this and applaud them, but to also say, okay, God, what, what is it that you have equipped me to yeah. do today? Like the people and places that you've placed me around the resources, the gifts, the talents, any of that, every single person I fully believe has been uniquely blessed gift and wired to make a difference in the world. And that's mm-hmm. kind of why we called the show the common good, because for us, there are plenty of people we know that are like, Hey, I don't know how I feel about this Jesus thing or this Bible thing. I'm like that, that's fine. Yep. That's great. Bring all those doubts, bring all those questions. Let's work towards the greater good, the common good of the people around us. And I think if we can start there, I don't know, 
think it could really make a big difference in the world. Yeah. So we tell you these stories more to, to, to just kind of uh, do all of those things. So to, to so that we don't get so <laughs> sometimes all these stories can get so heavy. And yeah, so right. you can get so down and um, you can just feel like culture is just spinning out of control. And it's, it's good to be reminded of light every now and then. And and good news, but also then just to be challenged ourselves. So if you've got stories like this that you know of, please share them with us at the common good radio show. You could do that. Uh, you could call us at three, one, two, six, six, zero, two, five, nine, four, get us those stories. We would love to highlight them here on the common good. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about an article out of Christianity today uh, in which it's titled this Bonhoeffer convinced me to abandon my dream. We're going to talk a little bit about vision and dreams next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today on this Tuesday afternoon. Uh, we are glad to have you with us. You can always follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Online at 1160hope.com. Find our podcast wherever it is you find your podcasts. Go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review. And now you can find us on Twitter at Common Good Talk, at Common Good Talk. Uh, you can follow us there on Twitter as well. Uh, pull a lot of articles from Christianity Today, and I, you and I both uh, posted a little inside baseball. We've got uh, kind of a common Google document that you and I put articles we like on there, and you and I both put this one on there. So... So scandalous. Uh, scandalous. Wow. Just inside proves, baseball. Just pro- inside baseball. Whoa. Just proves also that we don't read what the other people post. Because I'm like, I posted it. I posted it. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's entitled this. Bonhoeffer convinced me to abandon my dream. But it's a lot more about this pastor uh, who wrote this article. Name. Uh, how do you say that? Chase Rapogel. Rapogel? Rapogel. Pastor of Bent Oak Church in Springfield, Missouri. And uh, he writes about when he was in... Uh, in seminary, he had to do something to kind of designing a church. And he goes into something that I don't know if you feel it, but I feel it all the time as a pastor. I'm the lead pastor at Four Corners Community Church. Uh, Ian is one of the pastors at Community Christian Church in Naperville. And everybody wants to know what's coming next. What's your vision? What's your leadership? What's your vision? And he talks about the the crushing weight that can be. The always what's in the future, what's next. And uh, he he talks about this whole concept of vision and leadership being a real struggle for him. And he says he was entirely unprepared for four words on Dietrich Bonhoeffer's classic book, Life Together, where Bonhoeffer writes, God hates a visionary dreaming. <laughs> God hates visionary dreaming. Have, have you read Life Together, by the way? A long time ago. That's I so did. good. I did. It's so good. And uh, so... Uh, Bonhoeffer then goes on to talk about how our point is not to talk about vision. Uh, it could cost us our congregation. Uh, and then the the article goes on to talk about that. Sometimes we need to abandon our dream and embrace the church in front of me uh, to really be the best pastor I can be, the best church we can be, that it's not always about what's the next hill to die on or the next hill to take. Although sometimes we have hills to take. So yeah. it is it is kind of this constant tension for us as pastors. So anyway, what are your thoughts on this? I want to actually read an excerpt here because for it. it's Bonhoeffer. Yeah. Why not? So um, he says, it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. This is following the uh, God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others and by himself. 
He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. And then he goes on a little later. Um, he offers a better way, and the author identifies that as gratitude. Mm. Quoting Bonhoeffer, he says, Because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship, we enter into that common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. Mm. And I, I'd love to know what you think of that. You're a church planner. I'm not a church planner. So I think you maybe have a different relationship with this idea of kind of visionaring and dreaming big yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And maybe just a different history than I do. I'd be curious to know what you think. So when you start a church, everybody wants to know where you're going to be five years from now, where you're going to be five years from now. What, the classic the vision plan? question, right? What's the plan? Yeah. What's the plan? And I don't think I, this is what something I came to, to grips with at some point along the last, I would say the last two or three years. I don't think I'm very good at vision. I don't mm. think I'm very good at like, future way out there but yet that's all that i was taught like i'm told to think about it all the time right and it really did i resonate with what this guy's saying because it became a real weight around my shoulders like i don't know where we're going to be 10 years from now Mm. i don't know where we're going to be five years from now and uh i love how he ends his article he says as every pastor knows it's common for people to ask how big is your church i've answered that question countless times but lately i've noticed more people asking a different question what's your vision for the church I used to try to articulate some coherent response. Now I usually respond, I don't really have one. I'm just trying to pay attention to God, pay attention to my people, and Mm. give voice to what I see. And I just think that's really powerful. You ask, what was it like to start a church? Everything is like, we're going to rally our people around a vision for how we're going to get more people, for how we're going to get a building, for how we're going to see people come to Christ. And it's never, if you're not careful, it's rarely about the people who are there. And so you end up attracting people who want to take a hill. But then when you're not very good at it, like <laughs> pointing that picture out, they kind of fall away. And eventually your church, you, you've got people who just want to be loved and shepherded. They just want to be a community. They want to right. be a family. Right. And if you're not careful and you're always talking about three years from now, five years from now, here's what we're trying to do. Hmm. But I also appreciate what Bonhoeffer says there. Like when we set vision apart from prayer and apart from God, and it's not, it can't be changed and it's just consultant driven or this or that, then it's all about the pastor or it's all about the elders. It's not about what God's doing. Yeah. Right. It's not about the people who are there. And so I do struggle with it because at the same time, leading, leading an organization, you do have to chart a course for where we're going. Yeah. Um, but I, I wonder if we'd be better off every now and then to be like, you know what? I don't know right now. Like we're going to pray. We're going to, hmm. we're going to gather. And uh, or if that would be detrimental, I, I am honestly not sure about that. Well, in different traditions, obviously, have very different ways of going about this. You know, the the Quakers who were in a lot of ways our first abolitionists, so very mm-hmm. active, forward thinking, also have a very like traditional spirit led type of gathering. Mm-hmm. Like it is a there is no real hierarchy in the way that we understand it. And that for me, that the quote from that book that has always stood out to me, and I you know I read it fifteen years ago, then I read it probably ten years ago, and I. I, t- I, t- I seem to read it like every five years or so. Uh, this, is the, this is the quote that kind of wrecked me. It said, the person who loves their dream for community will destroy community, mm. but the person who loves those around them will create community. Ah, that's good. And that distinction 
is so tricky because it's uh, he's sort of I mean obviously he's being clever but it, the way he begins it the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community well what if their dream is in line with God's dream mm. like are we disparaging all dreams always like, I don't know that that's necessarily wise but there was a gosh I forget who it was but someone at uh, GLS this last week her whole big rallying point was I'm tired of hearing people say dream big like we need to start dreaming small. Like who are the people and places right around us right here and now? And she, I mean, she kind of went on to sort of rail against some of the like dream big entrepreneurial type of church leadership that in a lot of ways you're saying you don't see yourself as very good at. No, she would say that's good. That's yeah. a, that's a strength of yours and kind of railing against some of what we've, I mean, I even think about, you know, I, I posted this a couple of days ago and I said, um, mentions in the Bible, and it was leader six times, servant 800 plus times. You know, like what? what is it about discipleship that we've sort of become unattracted to and our obsession with leadership that yep. has maybe in some ways undergirded some of what Bonhoeffer is talking about? Here? Yeah. Like, I think this line in this article really sums up how one of the things I'm learning as a pastor, and I think that was, has been a real struggle for mine, uh, it's this. I had traded a real congregation for a dream one blind to the work God was doing right in front of me. Like, I I think I came to a realization early on that I was not intentionally, but sometimes because you want to grow a bigger church that you viewed your people that were there as, as gateways to the next people. Like, how can I use what I have now to get the next You're dreaming of the next thing. Exactly. And that people don't want to be used in that way. Like they want to be inspired, but they want to be used. And, And eventually no, how about we we focus on the people who are here and love on them and still think together about how to reach their neighbors and their friends and this and that. But but instead of like, OK, you're the gateway to the bigger crowd, you're the gateway to this. Just I came to find out I came to figure out for myself was really self-serving and mm. just and tiring. Yeah, I want to love tiring, the people right. who are there. I want to love them, the people that God has put within our building. And just kind of do this messy thing we call church together. Let me let me just close with this. Then yep. he says, Bonhoeffer convinced me to abandon dreaming. A church is never abstract. A congregation is never a demographic goal or an imaginary gathering. We are not called to a possibility, but to God's work at a specific moment in this place with these people. Mm. God is building his church. Our gratitude comes from the joy of being in on it. Yep. The weight of forming and building a church is more than we can bear. The stories of pastors crushed beneath the work they've constructed are endless, but being called to a work God has initiated is a wonderful grace. Mm. Pastoral ministry is a gift, not an achievement. The moment we shift our eyes from God's particular work to future abstractions, we are no longer pastors. I am going to think about this article uh, so good. a whole lot more in the weeks to come. Yeah, this article is a good one, man, especially no for those of us who are pastors. Whew. This is a good one to wrestle with well we're going to go back to a feel-good story coming up next a story of a six-year-old and something this six-year-old did for their mom her mom uh, this six-year-old's mom uh, is really impressive that's coming up next year on the common good am 1160 hope for your life to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life alongside ian simpkins my name is brian Fromm. thankful for you joining us today uh you can find us at facebook at the common good radio show on twitter (laughs) twitter twitter how to find your twin online (laughs) twitter.com i'm I'm going there right now twitter.com one of those days that's awesome at uh the common good talk you can find us on just common good talk sorry (laughs) 
<laughs> common Good Talk. At Common Good Talk at Twitter. You can get us there online at 1160hope.com. You can find our podcast wherever it is you find your podcast. Also, twinner.com is weird. <laughs> I think it's a car It's a car thing. It's all in German. Did you actually look it up? That's I did. Dangerous yeah, to Twitter, look yeah, stuff up. That, was, that was a risky uh, move. It's dangerous. It's a pretty website, though. Uh, Sorry. See segment two, hour one today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nice. That was good. If you don't know what I'm talking about, check out the podcast. So uh, we're going to read a cool feel-good story. But before we do that, let me tell you about something going on. Date night. Date night needs to be more than just dinner and a movie. Amen, sister. The free ebook Date Night Ideas by Dr. Greg and Aaron Smalley mm. is filled with 52, once a week, great date night suggestions for you and your spouse. Come on. It could be for you and a friend, even if your spouse doesn't want to go with you. I, nope. don't, I don't think that's a good idea, Pastor Brian. Okay. <laughs> go ahead and nix that right that's now. You're going to get yourself on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> Download download this Focus on the Family resource now at 1160hope.com. Keyword marriage. You'll also have a chance to take a Focus on Marriage assessment and enter to win an all-inclusive retreat. Download your free ebook now at 1160hope.com. Keyword marriage. That is 1160hope.com. Keyword marriage. Marriage. I don't think that's how Focus was hoping that line was going to go. <laughs> but it went. <laughs> <laughs> Tactically, the words were said. Yes, you're right. <laughs> we it made it. It's done. Why don't you tell us about this nice story out of Denver of the six-year-old? I want to talk more about your suggestion to bring a friend <laughs> instead of your spouse on this date night challenge. My, my wife is just staring at the radio now, just <laughs> shaking, shaking her, her head. head. Right. Oh, Brian. All right. Uh, so this this is a feel good. And we were saying a couple segments ago that I think it's important, actually. Some people ask, like, why, you know, shouldn't it just always be hard hitting stuff? And I just said, oh, it's just tiring. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's so good for our heart, for our head, just to breathe a little and say, okay, there's good stuff going on. Um, and again, this one, like the other one, ha- has some sadness to it for sure. Um But yeah, it just was one that I thought would be good to share. So it says just weeks after his father passed away, a six year old Colorado boy upheld his vow to his dad to take care of his mom. Mm. So that sentence alone. Right. Yep. If you're not starting to get a little misty already, it's coming. Check your pulse right here. Brady Campbell's father, Brandon, died after a battle against uh, stage four colon cancer. Before Brandon died, however, he and Brandy came up with the idea of a lemonade stand to take my mom on a date. Brady said, because I didn't have enough money and wanted to pay. So I did. The day after his father passed away, Brady followed through on the promise to take care of his mom. Brady is a very sweet soul, Amanda Campbell, Brady's mother said. He's always looking out for somebody else, and I think he really learned that from his dad. First, it was just a few neighbors becoming customers, but once a Denver police officer got word, he put out a radio call to other first responders. Before Brady knew it, fire trucks Mm. and police cruisers started rolling up. Brady and his stand raised $240 that day. It really lifted our spirits, and it made Brady so happy, Amanda said. A GoFundMe page has also been set up to raise even more money for Brady, his mom, for cancer research. This, they say, is the ultimate when life gives you lemon story, and Brady (laughs) is making the most of it. It's pretty special, and I know Brandon would be very, very proud. Mm. And I read stories like that, and I think, you know, we were even a little earlier talking about fatherlessness and some of the, not just a kid doing a cool thing, but also the wife really recognizing like, yeah, I think a lot of that is his dad's influence, his presence in his life to take care of uh, his mom. And I think 
it's also it's a I don't know it's a commentary on the beauty of community. Yeah. When a police officer catches wind of this and doesn't just go, oh, isn't that sweet? But says, no, we're going to rally around this family. I just think we were talking about that too, right? How we how much we need each other and this yeah. idea of not just when tragedy strikes, although that tends to be the most obvious, but but all the time. And I just I don't know. I love the picture this depicts of like man, there there is still so much goodness and beauty and hope and care in the world. And I just want to tell more and more stories like this to cut through the noise of all yes. all the heartache and all the chaos. It's such a good story. And you went where I was going to go when I first read this, because like you said, it was just yesterday that we were talking about the epidemic of fatherlessness uh-huh. and how much of a role this plays. This dad is is facing was facing imminent death and made a point to teach his son and come up with a plan with his son. Right. He didn't just say, hey, son, take care of your... You, well, you can't tell a six-year-old, take care of your mother. Right. Uh, you can teach him what that looks like. He's like, hey, here's one thing that looks like. How about you do a mm. lemonade stand and raise money and take mom out on a date? Mom's going to be sad. You know? Right. Take mom out. Can you and, even imagine having that conversation, by the way? No. Like knowing that no. the end is near for you and having to have a conversation with your six-year-old. Like, take take mom on a date when I'm gone. Uh, no. And knowing that you're not going to be there to enjoy uh, it and see gosh. it. And then it's just the day after his dad passed away, Brady followed through on the promise to take care of his mom mm. and start this lemonade stand. Like this kid knew when dad dies, like I got to take care of it. Like, but this is how I'm going to do it. Yes. Like what an awesome picture of a dad. Uh, you know, when you're in your last moments, you could be like, nope, I'm going to do everything I've always wanted to do. I'm, right. You know, right. Whatever. But he's like, you know what I want to do? I want to make sure my son knows what it looks like to take care of his mom and be a man. And I want to, it's just so uplifting. And like you said, the part where the policemen are coming, like it's just everything about this story. It's like, these are the stories that Disney should be making movies about. Like this is, yeah. this is really sweet. And and underlying it, like you said, is a tragedy, uh, but it's even fruit. Like if none of us want to die young, but man, if you were going to die young, at least what's encouraging here is fruit coming out of that uh-huh. tragedy that, right. uh, that's going past you. And I just want, man, and then that the kid did it. Ah, it's all so good. It, it is really so good in the midst of something really hard. And my challenge would be, you know, we are now talking about it, right? Yep. And hopefully a whole bunch of other people are now hearing it and they're being inspired. So the the fruit of this is is far reaching than just this neighborhood. But don't wait for a tragedy. No. Like just a, a week ago, my, my wife had signed us up. So we, you know, we just bought this home a year and a half ago. So we're kind of new to the community, but we just keep having babies so we <laughs> haven't uh, been able to meet a lot of people we just kind of hunkered down and they busy having babies kind of yeah and they so normally this community uh like once a year would have this one big event at the uh the elementary school down the block but this year they wanted to try something different so they recruited five different families to kind of own their little region to do a little you know front yard driveway thing uh and i love so i you know got a got the projector out and we borrowed a popcorn machine and I, it was taco tuesday so i bought some tacos nice. and i got some s'more stuff and brought the the fire pit out front and um we were like we this may be for naught like the, nobody it might just happen that nobody shows up and a bunch of people showed up and we got to play a movie for the kids oh, we're making fun. s'mores and it was just a couple of hours but it was like i stepped back and I kind of just watched all this happening. I'm like, this wasn't that hard. Yeah. Just put up a projector and a popcorn machine. Like, <laughs> yeah. and then just people, you know, walking their kids or walking their dog. And I got to meet people and I got to hear their stories. And I got the, oh, that we're living in this community together. And I thought, man, shame on me for not being more intentional about doing that more often. Like just being present in our community. And so like this story, obviously, 
is in response to a great tragedy. Yep, but yep. all of us have the capacity to move our bonfire pit out front or to buy some graham crackers and marshmallow. Like we could do this today. Like what would it look like to just be more present in our communities to cancel one evening plan and just be around yep. to like let people know that they're seen and known and cared for. I think, I don't know. I think that could really, that could really have an impact. Absolutely. That's cool that you did that. We'll have to talk about that. I'd like to hear more about that story, but okay. um, it is also a, a reminder that, we read these stories all the time about when someone's near death, the things that become important to them. And we yeah. all want to value those things before we're facing death. And this is another one of those opportunity or another one of those stories where this guy said, before I die, here's what I've got to pass on to my son. And here's what I've got to do. And, and that I've got a kid, I've got kids, I've got a son, you've got boys. Like what are we going to build? How am I going to teach my son to treat his mom, even it doesn't require me to have stage four cancer to be right. having those conversations with my son or my daughters about other things. It doesn't require me to be on my deathbed. And I think that's a good reminder as well. Yeah, I totally agree. And those, those tend to be the stories that I'm really drawn to, too, where it's like, OK, what wisdom to the people at the very end of their life? What, what do they have? What do they yes. bring to looking back on whether it's 30 years or 90 years? There's a, I think, a crystal clarity. And, and for him to be focused in on family, it feels very Christ like, to be honest. Yeah who on the cross is, is right looking at John saying, Hey, this is your mom and looking at Mary and yeah. saying, this is not your son, like care for her. Like there is something yes. very, very um, sacred, I think to that kind of perspective. Well, we'd love to hear your feedback on this story. Like we said, it's a feel good story, but it's really deep. It teaches us a lot of challenging things that I know I'll be thinking about uh, even after we're done today. Well, we always like to end the show with just some craziness, just some hilarity from the internet. And we're going to do that next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. That music can only mean one thing here mm-hmm. on The Common Good. That is craziness found on the internet by our producers, Keith Conrad. And as we like to affectionately call our regular producer, Producer John. You do this we thing. I've never no, called you're him in. Producer John. You, you just did? You're I'm, in. I'm calling him PJ. PJ. <laughs> I'll probably respond to PJ more than Producer John. Oh. What? I that win. Makes, that doesn't make any sense. I win. But it's, it's kind of, a, it is affectionate. Like you said, it's affectionately called Producer John, but it's just like, eh. I don't know. John, John is not grateful for the title you've given him. That title is now going to become cemented for me now. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I was trying to give him a signal it's like, John, saying. what you're doing you're going down a bad path is here, only going to make Brian want to yes. do this more. <laughs> All right. I wouldn't even going to use Johnny more. I'm just going to call him the producer. <laughs> I've been calling him Johnny B also. <laughs> there you go. That's not as clever. All righty. Crazy stuff from the internet. You go first. We have not read these. We have not. Okay. You know the drill. Yep. Ukraine. Scientists create drinkable vodka from Chernobyl water. Grain. <laughs> What is happening in the world? <laughs> a group of scientists announced they have created vodka from ingredients found inside the Chernobyl oh exclusion gosh. zone and verified that it is safe to drink. Atomic sure. vodka. It's literally called atomic vodka. It was created by University of Portsmouth scientists from grain and water from inside the exclusion zone as a part of a three-year research project into the radioactivity of crops grown inside the 19-mile radius around the Chernobyl nuclear plant, which experienced a reactor explosion in 1986. 30 years uh, on after the accident, we found was that in the area, the crops were slightly above the very cautious Ukraine limit for consumption. So technically, you can't eat those crops. But we thought, well, we've got some grain. Why don't we try making vodka? The lifetime of working in a nuclear power plant has given me a healthy green glue. Mm-hmm. Classic. It's uh, weird that we've been able to use that one a lot, by a the way. A lot. Next one's out of Virginia. 
elderly man survives on Coca-Cola for five days after falling in his home. Oh, my gosh. Residents of Arlington's Williamsburg neighborhood were shocked to learn their beloved elderly neighbor, Glenn Smith, had to survive on Coca-Cola for five days after he fell in his kitchen and was unable to get up. We were horrified and shocked, but we were really happy to hear about the Coke that he could keep himself, as you know, alive and okay until help came, said his neighbor. Police say they were called after a neighbor and a mail carrier noticed the man's mail had been stacking up and that his door had been open for a few days. Uh, Officers found the man on the floor and called paramedics who took the man to Virginia Hospital Center to be treated. I'm falling and I can't get up. I knew that was was coming. All right. California, naked rambling man arrested for burglary after being stuck in chimney, identified as Brian Fromm. <laughs> the man was rambling and naked and screaming that people were trying to kill him. Oh, this might be a sad story. Yep. The naked man was also arrested on burglary charges. Yikes. Wait, Police wait. said he tried to steal items from another Ladera Heights home before he fled and then tried to hide out in a neighbor's chimney before getting stuck. They had me running around buck naked, the man screamed as he was taken into custody. They asked if anybody had a towel. Somebody tossed a white towel onto the roof. A woman discovered a naked man in her apartment. The woman's husband confronted, and they got into a fight. I would never fight somebody buck naked, the suspect screamed at onlookers. The suspect ran off naked through various backyards across Wooster Avenue. As police searched for him, he chose the chimney to hide in. Maybe for about an hour, they were searching dogs. They came in the backyard with their dogs searching. Officials eventually called off the search, but the suspect only then began to make his presence known. How did we not go Santa Claus in that one? Yeah, I thought I for sure Santa Claus was going to be. Oh, oh, we're going oh, all around. All right. I, 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 love, I love hearing you say Buck Naked. I don't know what. Yeah. That's weird. That is weird. That that you is love weird, that. Dog. Yeah. Thanks for admitting that to everybody. I, uh, yeah. We're just going to let that one pass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, PJ. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> My name is Buck. <laughs> you, you shall call me Buck. Uncle Buck. It's <laughs> California. Skyrocketing avocado prices leading to phony guacamole made with squash. No. With avocado prices spiking. Faux guacamole is a real thing. It's not a real thing, though. I play bass in faux guacamole. <laughs> One longtime restaurateur at El, Te- El Tepeyac Cafe says it just isn't the same. El Tepeyac has been in the same East Los Angeles location for more than 60 years for Carlos Thome. Who's called this place his work home for 11 of those years? The price of out av- of avocados has been a battle he's waged for a while. I would say in three months it showed a big change. In May we were at thirty dollars a case of avocados. Now we're at sixty-five to seventy dollars a case. At that price, he says he hasn't passed on to his customers, but the average shopper does feel it at the supermarket. Instead, uh, inside Vierta Supermarket, the price of two large avocados costs just under. Six dollars. Wow. Uh, and then it goes on and on. And it says we're known for big, humongous portions of guacamole at the restaurant. And we just kind of bite the bullet on it because we're trying to keep our customers happy. In previous years, they've come up to one hundred and ten dollars around this time. One hundred and ten dollars per case. And we would have to say sometimes we don't have it. And we noticed in the past that that happened. A lot of customers get mad. And so now they make it with squash. I am shocked. Shocked. Well, not that shocked. You really hit all the details of that story, didn't yeah, you? That you story wasn't really... ending. I was looking for the easy out, and there <laughs> was no say, easy he out. He was really into this story. Right, that story wouldn't end. Florida! Florida. Oh, <laughs> man. I wanted to do it. Uh, live hand grenade discovered during Florida traffic stop. That sounds about right. Sheriff's deputy in DeSoto County, Florida, say they discovered a cache of weapons during a traffic stop Saturday, including an apparent live hand grenade. Narcotics unit was conducted... 
A unit was conducted a tra- conducting cheese, Louise, a traffic stop when the weapons were discovered. The DeSoto County Sheriff's Office said in a Facebook post, an M67 grenade with the pin in place was found in the car. Driver Donald Reed Jr. told detectives, as far as he knew, the grenade was alive. The post said the bomb squad from the neighboring Sarasota County responded to help remove and destroy the grenade. I just love making things go kablooey. <laughs> that one's made an appearance that a couple one, times. That too, one has it? as well. The so show gets weirder and weirder. We, we didn't end well with our reading abilities there. We made it through the whole show, and that last one, we kind of uh, had I some know, trouble. really struggled. Yeah, it's, I think it's all it's Producer Buck over there. Produ- oh, good old <laughs> Producer Buck. PB. Well, we've had a lot of fun. We hope you join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.